podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's history class. Now, whenever I misspeak, and in this particular case, that's exactly what it was. In the last podcast, Butler's Runaways, I said that the Compensation Act was signed in 1862. It was actually 1861. And as the young ones say, that's my bad. When I do a my bad, I will correct it in the next podcast. Now, this podcast today is lighting that candle a little bit more brightly. How many times in these podcasts have I said these two things? One, I don't know what you know about what I'm going to talk about. And what I'm building up to is the Emancipation Proclamation. All I know is what I learned from my students when I was teaching in the classroom, and that was they did not know much, if anything at all, about it. One might raise his or her hand, I think that's how you do it, his or her hand, and say, didn't that have something to do with ending slavery? Yes. And that was the extent. Now, I'm going to tell you, whenever I would ask things like that, and no one raised their hand, no one offered any answers, that did not mean they did not know. It did not mean they did not have an answer. It could mean that I'm afraid that if I say something that it might accidentally be wrong and then people are going to laugh at me and that teacher is going to humiliate me, I would never, ever, ever do anything like that. And if I ever did, in 43 years of teaching, except when I was a drill instructor at Paris Island, South Carolina, I never intended to, and I apologize. But just going from the responses I got, most Americans know very little about the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, here's the other thing. When there are 17 things that have to be said at one time, cannot do it. Cannot be done. Where do I get started with the Emancipation Proclamation? Freedom's candle going to burn so brightly. A little background. In this part of the war, by this time chronologically, let me set the scene, and I want to remind you, this is by no means a class on the Civil War. It is an overview of the Civil War, as I did in the classroom as part of 1301 and later 1302 history. There are these things called libraries, and in libraries they have books. And if you don't want to go to the library to get a book, go to a bookstore. If you want some that they do not have in the bookstore, get them to order you one or get them on interlibrary loan at the library. Virtually everything that I talk about, there is a book on. That's where I learn most of my information. Now, I haven't gotten into all of this and probably confused you. Where do I get started? I had just said I'm going to set where the war is at this time chronologically and this time it's going to be in July of 1862. And where we are is this. In 1862, General Joseph E. Johnston, Confederate general, was wounded in the battle Seven Pines. Robert Lee was given command and he will shape the army and will make it famous as the Army of Northern Virginia. He will then fight George B. McClellan in what is referred to as Seven Days Battles, the Peninsula Campaign, 
and McClellan, who is in contention of being the worst general in the Civil War, north or south, we can just say that he is the worst one that I know of right off the top of my head in the north. He is going to be retreating down the peninsula as Lee attacks him. Now you can read about the peninsula campaign. You can get on the animated map, but I would rather for you to read about the battles on the peninsula campaign. Now what I'm going to say about Robert E. Lee again is remember there are biographies on him and I'm going to recommend a couple of them right now. One of them that I really like is The Man Who Would Not Be Washington. You can find this on Amazon. I'm not going to bother with the author. The Man Who Would Not Be Washington. That's one. Another one, and it's a dual biography of Grant and Lee, The Crucible of Command. Another one on Grant, American Ulysses. There are plenty of biographies. That's the best way to learn about these individuals. But I will tell you this about Robert E. Lee. He knew what many others did not know in the South. That they could not withstand a long war. They don't have the resources. They don't have the manpower. Now I'm going to mention something right now that I'm going to mention from time to time every time we talk about how the North had the South outnumbered. I don't care how many men you have. And I mentioned this during the lecture on Cortez. I don't care how many men you have. The only ones that are worrisome to the enemy are the ones that are trying to kill them. Now, I'm going to mention that more than once. Just because your population is more than that of your enemy does not assure in any way victory. Many would not serve. Many may not go into battle. Many may run away. Many, 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 many things could happen. And so if you have an enemy outnumbered, you better have numbers of men that are willing to go forward in face of death, willing to fight. And that's true on both sides in any war. Lee was outnumbered. Their population was greater in the north than in the south. So Lee knew this. He is going to have to convince the north that they cannot win this war. And the way he's got to do that is he has got to bloody them so badly that they will say, that the price of victory is not worth the number that are dead and wounded. It's a war of attrition. And so, as a great historian at the University of Virginia put it, Gregory Goffrey, if you go back in time and you find yourself in the South in the Civil War and you want to try to survive that war, do not join Robert E. Lee's army. He will attack and attack and attack like a tiger. Now that's an overview of what he's done. Then after defeating McClellan in the seven days, the Peninsula Campaign, he then takes on General Pope in the Second Battle of Manassas. And he wins that one too. In the north, it's one defeat after another with the main army of the Potomac. In the West, as we saw with Grant, there's victories out there. But in the East, in the army of the Potomac, it's one defeat after another. And so, we get to July of 1862. Lincoln has determined to do something. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I have to think about how I'm going to say this. What he has determined to do is issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And generally speaking, just in case you get on jeopardy, yes, that is the freeing of the slaves. 
and I'm going to say this more than once. I was watching book TV on C-SPAN 2 one Saturday. Yes, Virginia, there is a book TV. And for 48 hours on the weekend, it's one history book after another. Authors presenting their books at book fairs, book reviews. And I will fess up, I do not listen to every one of them. But there are many that I do listen to. And one day, I happened to flip the channels over, and there it was. There were, I'm going to remember, five, five historians who each had written a biography on Abraham Lincoln. Now, I didn't get in into the questions and the answers. And this is what I saw. A young man an African-American stood up to ask a question. And this is what he asked. That when he was in high school, he was told that Lincoln freed the slaves. Then he got to college and they said, no, Lincoln did not free the slaves. So his question of these five biographers of Abraham Lincoln was this. Did Lincoln free the slaves? Podcasters, if there'd been a number that I could have called, I would have called in. Because I would tell you this every single biographer of Abraham Lincoln could not answer that question. What do they say? Well, there were many, many that were involved in freeing the slaves. Well, the emancipation didn't actually free anybody. Uh, no, there was a lot of them. Both. And I was going berserk. I was going berserk. And I was yelling at the television, if not Lincoln, who? Who? You need to remember this. Because I am going to convince you Lincoln was the great emancipator. Now, if I can convince you of that, then I cannot convince you that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and that the moon is not actually made of green cheese. In July 1862, he is going to discuss the Emancipation Proclamation with William C. Seward and Gideon Wells, Secretary of the Navy, Secretary of State. He reads it to him. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to pause just for a moment. I'm going to pause right here just for a moment. He is going to read the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. Podcasters, that word preliminary drove me crazy for years and years and years and years. What was preliminary about it? He is going to issue in September the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And podcasters, like finally seeing the light of day after being in Emancipation Proclamation darkness for many years, I realized it. We have a saying. He had not yet crossed the I's and dotted the T's. Did you catch that? He has not dotted the I's and crossed the T's. It's an overview of the emancipation. But basically, he's going to end slavery. Just by saying that, podcasters, there's a million and one things that have to be said at one time, and it's just impossible, impossible to begin with. Again, I don't know what you know about the Emancipation Proclamation. I know what my students did not know. I know what my students told me. I know what people told me. 
and what most of them told me was entirely incorrect. How do I get started? I get started this way. Oh, they say Lincoln only did that for political reasons. He only did that for political reasons. I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. Years ago, Russia was the Soviet Union. The Iron Curtain. Communist. A place you did not want to visit. Well, I can't say that. There were people that did visit that place. And I heard this. I don't remember where. There was a group of Americans that had visited Moscow and one day walking down the street of Moscow, Russia, a lady saw a flower. I'm going to call it a daisy. And she got a camera and took a photograph of that daisy and as soon as that shutter closed, a hand grabbed that camera And that was the hand of a Russian policeman. And he opened that camera and he pulled that film out and he yelled at her, You were told no political photographs. No political photographs. And what did she say? It's a daisy. It's a daisy. No political photographs. It is a daisy. A daisy. Yes. Yes. And that Russian policeman said, I know that you took a picture of that daisy because you like daisies, don't you? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I bet back in America you belong to a daisy growing club, don't you? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And you're going to take this picture of a Russian daisy back and show it to that daisy growing club. And you're going to say, see, Those Russians can't even grow a decent daisy. That's political. Podcasters, if a daisy is political, you tell me what is not political. Certainly, freeing the slaves was political. Now, here's stage two. One would assume that if one is going to do something for political reasons, it is to make that individual more popular after he does it than before he does it. Not with the Emancipation Proclamation. Just the opposite. Someday I want you podcasters to sit around with people and discuss this question. Who was the most unpopular president in American history? And if you say Abraham Lincoln, you are correct. I may have said this before. I'm going to say it again. There were no political polls then. However, if you look at the presidential election of 1860, Lincoln got less than 40%. Less than 40%. When he is president in 1862... Nearly half of the nation hate him. That's everyone below the Mason-Dixon line. In in 11 Confederate states, 15 slave states, and then you go north, and you have these copperheads who opposed him, opposed the war. They do not like how many people are there to like Abraham Lincoln. So he's starting off with a very small number of popular approval. And I'm going to convince you of this. By issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, his popularity is going to go down, 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 further than an elevator in a canyon. It is one of the most unpopular things that any president has ever done. Now, to illustrate how do I know this, I know this because I know what's going to happen. But to illustrate, this is what a teacher of U.S. government once told his class and told me. 
that Lincoln is sitting there and he read the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet. And then he said, All that believe that I should issue this proclamation, raise your hand, and not a single hand went up. I misspoke again. Not a single hand of a cabinet member went up. One hand did go up. And that hand belonged to Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln then said, The yeas have it. The buck stops there, podcasters. Harry Truman said that. He is responsible for everything that is done in that government. Not one hand went up. William Seward, Secretary of State, said this. Mr. President, if you insist on issuing that Emancipation Proclamation that you just read us, you cannot do it now. You have to do it after a Union victory. Podcasters, this is so important. Again, an analogy. Let's pretend... My mom used to say, plaque, plaque, not thing on your teeth, but play like, let's play like. That candidate A is running for president of the United States, and it's the night before the election. And in looking at the tracing polls, he enjoys a popularity among voters of 1%. And we believe that 1% actually are family members. And he buys 10 minutes of airtime at 7 p.m. to convince the American people to elect him President of the United States. And what he says is this. When the camera comes on, he looks as sincere as he can And he looks at the millions of viewers and he says this. After I am elected president of the United States, the first thing I'm going to do is abolish the income tax. Well, there you are. You're the 99% that's not going to vote for him. But he just told you as soon as he's elected president, he's going to abolish the income tax. So what do you say? Oh, my goodness. I'm going to vote for you. I'm going to vote for you. I'm going to vote for you. Or do you start laughing? How desperate can you be? How desperate can you be? Why don't you promise us the moon? You desperate little loser. And then after that, candidate B has purchased 10 minutes of airtime. And according to the tracking poll, he has 99% popularity. And so we can call him Mr. President. It's just a matter of time. We're all going to vote for you. And then he looks as sincere as he can into that camera and he says, the first thing I'm going to do after being president is I'm going to abolish the income tax. Now listen to this, podcasters. They both said exactly the same thing. Which one do you believe? Which one said it, but did not have to say it? Mr. President William Seward meant, if you issue that proclamation before a victory, after one defeat after another, you're going to look like a desperate individual. Lincoln agreed with Mr. Seward. He folded the Emancipation Proclamation And he waited for a victory. In the handout I gave my students when I was in the classroom covering this period of history, and I probably have told you this before, I enjoyed putting little things down on that sheet. And what I put down was, on what I'm going to tell you now, a telegram answered. Oh, podcasters, I love doing that. Because I told my students, 
when you ask yourself, what am I supposed to know for the test? You've got it right there on that handout, that sheet. Because when you look at a telegram answered, you know exactly what that means. And this is it. The Foreign Secretary of France sent a telegram to the Foreign Secretary of England. And the telegram said, and of course I'm paraphrasing, in the name of humanity, we must declare war on the United States now. Now you think about what I just said. In the name of humanity, we must declare war on the United States now. Podcasters, how in the world can declaring war be humane? Well, in this case it was. Because what he is saying is this. Lincoln is no fool. And he knows that if France and England join the Confederacy in war against him, he has no chance of winning and must stop the war, give the South their independence. Now, we're going to go back and give you a rough number of how many people are going to die in this war. They're up now to 800,000. The war lasted four years. How many is that every year? If they had declared war in 1862, that war would have ended in 1862, and that would have saved a minimum of 400,000 podcasters. If you save that many lives, I will guarantee you someone ought to give you a medal for humanitarian reasons. The Foreign Secretary of England sent the telegram back. This was his answer. Lee is moving north. There is going to be a battle. If Lee wins, we will declare war on the United States. But if he loses, let's wait and see what happens. We'll let the fate of battle determine our course. Podcasters, this friend of mine, Bobby Nyman and I, we used to often talk and discuss like that one time in the Civil War Roundtable when the guest speaker didn't show up. But what did we do? Well, you know what we did. Each member present, all six or seven of us, told why we thought a particular battle was the single most important battle of that war. I told you earlier, my buddy thought it was shallow because of all the grief given to Grant and I always maintained if I could only pick one battle, it would be the one that's about to be fought. And it's because of what the Foreign Secretary of England just said if Lee wins. And where is that battle going to be fought? Robert E. Lee has moved across the Potomac into Maryland. Sang the song, Maryland, my Maryland, oh hell the mighty state. Lee's made some mistakes. He's moving through the part of Maryland that tends to be more pro-Union than pro-Confederate. Learning ING, reading ING. Oh my gosh, I know podcasters are saying, how many times, Mr. Stroud, are you going to tell us that? Well, I always wonder if there's a podcaster attending class for the very first time and have not heard me say that. I only recently learned that his objective was Pennsylvania. He was going into Pennsylvania. Now, why is he moving north? One of the strategies of the South in this war is to fight on the defensive. I have a feeling I've mentioned this before. 
strategy and tactics. The strategy is the game plan. Let's use the analogy of football again. And that is, if you have a passer that is just tremendous and you have you have passed and set records and won game for the passing attack, that is going to be your strategy. We're going to pass our way to victory. But every team that passes knows that you have to call a running play from time to time. You know, keep those linebackers honest. You know, you know all the terminology. Lee is fighting on the defensive. But the play called in this huddle is to move north. Why? All podcasters. There are so many reasons. He knows he has got to win this war quickly. They cannot sustain a long war. If he can defeat a Union army on northern soil in Pennsylvania, that might take the fight out of Lincoln and the north. Another thing. He wants to relieve the farmers of Virginia of providing food for his army. Listen to this, podcasters. Lee's army, I'm not going to go back and check. Let's just estimate his army is about 70,000 men. Think about this, podcasters. I want you to provide food for 70,000 people. Let's give them two meals a day. Every day, every day, every day, two meals a day. Can you do it? How many times are you going to have to drive through and order, I want 70,000 burgers to go? Those men get hungry. And so what they would do is they would start moving out from where the camp was and they go to the nearest farm and they're going to take down the fence post so they can cook the chickens they're going to steal. They're going to take all the corn out of the cornfield. They're going to shoot the cattle, take beef. And then the next day, because you did that to a close farm, you move a little bit further. And then move a little bit further, a little bit further. Now, if you're the Confederate Army and you're in the Confederacy, then you are foraging. If this is the Union Army, then they are stealing. They are stealing, but you know what's happening? Those farms are being devastated. And so if Lee could move his army into northern soil, they could start feeding off northern farms. They could win a victory and maybe end the war. Lee's moving north, and there's going to be a great battle. Now, that great battle is going to be the Battle of Antietam. When I was in the classroom, I cannot tell you the joy I had, and that's what it was, of drawing my little simple battle lines on the board and then getting, the last few years, I was getting a laser pointer, and I could sit in my chair behind that desk, and I could point up that board, and I could hit that board and those battle lines, with a light, and I could move it around, and I could show those students exactly how the move. Can't do that now. And so what I want you to do as homework is go to an animated map of the Battle of Antietam, also called Sharpsburg by the Confederates. Civil War Trust is a good one. But I'm going to give you a little overview. A little overview. Lee is moving north. His army is divided. There was a battle at South Mountain. Lee has now ordered the army to get back together, and they're going to rendezvous near the little southern town of Sharpsburg. Lee moves in on the west side of the Antietam Creek. And that would be the northern name of the battle. Antietam's southern name, as I said, would be Sharpsburg, Maryland. He has about 40,000 men because his army has been divided. Now, if you know about this, you know that a Confederate lost Lee's orders and it was found and given to George B. McClellan and he saw those orders and he said, if I cannot defeat Lee with this, my name is Mudd, it's not McClellan, it's certainly not Little Napoleon. 
Well, you know what I cannot convince myself of, podcasters? No, you don't know that. It didn't do any good that he found those orders. Because Lee's army was divided and he was closer to any one of those groups than they were to each other, and he did not do anything. Now, I'm going to tell you, George Britton McClellan never did do anything. He waited and he waited and he waited because he always thought he was outnumbered. He always thought Lincoln was trying to get him defeated. He was not being supplied. Oh, podcasters, what he said about Lincoln is unbelievable. And he especially said it to letters to his wife. He called Lincoln the original baboon in the White House. Had absolutely no respect. And I'm going to tell you something right now. He said that what would be best for this nation was for him to overthrow the government and create himself a dictatorship. And his army loved him. They loved this man. It did no good of finding Lee's marching orders. And so, if I had you in a classroom, I would have the Antietam Creek, I would have Lee on one side, and McClellan's Army of the Potomac on the other side. How much did it number? I'm not going to look it up. Just think, just estimate over 100,000. How far the battle lines were from left to right, five miles easily, maybe even more than that. Now here is something I cannot answer. What I'm going to tell you about right now, I have known for more years than many of you podcasters have been alive and have never found the answer. McClellan never did attack. He never took the offensive. He waited and he waited and he waited and he waited. But on September the 17th, 1862, at about 6 a.m. in the morning, he attacks Lee. I've never, ever, ever learn why on this one day he took the offensive. I have read that he believed that Lee's army was going to reunite, reunite. They were going to get reinforcements. That does not answer it for me. That would be more reason for him to stay on the defensive. So if any of you know a reason that McClellan attacked on morning of September the 17th, 1862, Please email me at jarheaddvs at gmail.com because I cannot find that. Having said all of that, he did attack. But he attacked, here we go, on the Confederate left, the Union right. Coming across the Antietam Creek, he sends in regiments of men and they go into Miller's Cornfield. The Confederates go into Miller's Cornfield to stop that attack. Back and forth in Miller's Cornfield they fight. The Confederates are pushed back. They're leaving the cornfield. They get reinforcements. They now push the Union back. The Union falling back. They then get reinforcements. They go back. Nobody knows how many times back and forth they went in that cornfield. And as one soldier later said, it was as if the sun stood still in the sky. This is the bloodiest war in American history. September 17, 1862 is the bloodiest day of the bloodiest war. And I will tell you this, and I believe it, the bloodiest spot in the bloodiest battle, single day, single day, was Miller's Cornfield. To illustrate that, I'm going to paraphrase again the battle report of the 1st Texas Regiment, Hood's Texas Brigade, in the cornfield. I'm going to paraphrase. I have the honor of reporting the actions of the 1st Texas, taken on September 17, 1962, near the town of Sharpsburg, Maryland. Now, podcasters, there was a time that I had the original 2,000 pages of battle reports for this one day. 
I would read my students what I just told you. I have the honor to report the actions of the First Texas near the town of Sharpsburg, Maryland. This is why I'm certain that Confederates named the battles for the nearest town. That's where they identify themselves in the battle reports to the nearest town. Union to the nearest body of water. Now, why is the Union named the one that's more recognizable? It's not because the winners write the history. In this war, the Southerners started writing that history. It is what it is. But here's the sentence that I mentioned before. I'm going to mention again. We entered the engagement with, and I'm just guessing on these numbers, they're going to be pretty close, 246 men, officers and staff alike. In one sentence, we left the engagement with 44 men. You crunch those numbers. Now again, I said this once before, but I'm going to say again. Those numbers don't really mean much until you remember that one year before there were 1,000 men in that regiment. This is not the first battle, podcasters. But in that one engagement at Antietam, Sharpsburg, Maryland, they're going to lose about 85% of their men. And every unit that went in to Miller's Cornfield will lose about that amount of men. The battle then shifts down to the center, which is known as the Bloody Lane. And again, the Union pushed the center of the Confederate lines. Reinforcements, they push them back. That lasted a couple of hours. And then it goes down to the left to a place called Burnside's Bridge. Now, that would be named Burnside's Bridge after the battle. I've been to that battlefield many years ago. I've been to every one of them. Even battlefields that most podcasters are not familiar with. I went to the museum first, the visitor center, and I found there were very few people there. And then I went out to take a tour of the battlefield, and it's probably changed by now, but at that time, I saw for the first part of the battle, Burnside's Bridge. People, seeing is believing. You can see it in books, you can see it on maps, but until you stand there on that ground and see it, you're not going to be able to see what I'm going to try to describe. I'm looking down a hill, and I see this bridge. And to get across that bridge, the Union soldiers have to kind of squeeze together. It's like a little funnel. They couldn't go across the water. The water wasn't all that deep, but the ridges on the other side, they couldn't have gotten out. Podcasters, if you could have gotten the enemy and say, would you Yankees please do us a favor since there's so many of you, could you please come across that bridge? Please come across that bridge. And the North, well, yeah, Johnny Reb, if that help make you... This is a death trap. They're not shooting ducks in a pond, but they're shooting federal soldiers. They're so squeezed together, you'd have to try hard to miss one of them. And here they come, and the slaughter is horrific. The Union retreat, they come back. The slaughter is horrific, they retreat. And then something happened. I've tried to find where I learned this. I cannot do it. So I'm going out on a historical limb and trying to get across that bridge with all the death, the destruction, the wounds, the screams. An officer remembered something. Now he remembered it quicker than it takes me to tell you what he remembered. Then in his brigade, there were two Irish regiments. They were known as the Twin 51st, 51st New York, 51st Pennsylvania. Now, I don't want to upset anyone, but I have a friend that is an Irishman, 
And the only store in Tyler, Texas that I used to go to. And one day after visiting him, I left to come back to Kilgore, Texas, which is in a wet county. And he said, Mr. Stroud, since you plan to come back before the holiday, would you do me a favor? Since you will be coming from a wet county and I'm in a dry county, could you bring me some whiskey? I said, okay. What do you want, a fifth? And his answer was, I'm Irish. A fifth is a sample. Now, the only reason I'm telling you that is because the twin 51st were Irish regiments. And about a week before, settlers had come to that army, and these Irishmen had bought all the whiskey they could afford, but not all they wanted. They just took the rest of it and drank it. Well, that man went and complained to the commanders of those regiments, and those commanders said, these men are going to pay, and they're going to pay in two ways. They're going to pay you back for every cent of whiskey that they took from you, and I'm not going to allow them to have another drop of whiskey for a month. Podcasters, they are in the midst of a dry spell. And that also remembered everything I just told you. And he yelled out over the sound of battle, You want your whiskey back? And hundreds said, Yes, yes. And he said, Get across that bridge. Now, do you want to guess what two regiments got across that bridge? The twin 51st. I guess they assumed that whiskey was on top of that hill because up that hill they went. And now what they've done is they have crushed the Confederate right. This is how you win battles. An officer standing next to Lee said, What are we going to do now, General? And Lee pointed his right hand off into the distance behind the Union Army that had just turned his right flank and said, Yonder comes Hill. Hill, I believe it was A.P. Hill, had been left behind at Harpers Ferry, Virginia with artists at dawn, march and join Lee near Sharpsburg. And they could hear that battle raging. And there's an old saying in the military, if you don't know what else to do, you march to the sound of the guns. And he heard those guns that started at 6 a.m. He was marching so fast. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I was an infantryman in the Marine Corps. We walked. I do not have a clue how many miles we walked. But I'm going to tell you this. You take my word for it. I enlisted in the Marine Corps when I was 195, and I was not fat, but the Marines said I was. After boot camp, I trimmed down to 175. I went to Vietnam about 175. Infantry, I came out 128 pounds, and I was not the smallest one. We all were like that. A 20-mile hike, nothing. That's where these Confederates were. How in the world do you think that Lee's army got from Virginia to Sharpsburg, Maryland? And they started moving on the double quick. And Hill was moving them so fast that many of those soldiers could not keep up and they dropped out. These were like Olympian runners that were dropping out. And when the Union that had turned Lee's flank saw that there were Confederates coming from their rear, they simply retreated back across the bridge. And that's the way the battle ended. Both armies were in about the same position they had been in the morning when the battle started. The only difference was, and I'm not checking the casualties, you can check that, so I'm going to just give you an estimate. About 30,000 men were no longer standing. They were dead and wounded. A little more than 3,000, I believe, were dead. This is horrific, podcasters. I'm going to tell you something else. Years ago, I got a video. It was called, I believe it was called Lincoln and... Lee at Gettysburg, I mean at Antietam. Lincoln goes there after 
and they reenacted the battle. But when it was all over, they did something that I had never seen before and I've never seen again. There are people that are really into the Civil War. They're reenactors. They're historians. They're readers. At the end of that movie, it showed who the park ranger was. And this is what he said. On the anniversary of that battle, September the 17th, I forget what year it was, he got volunteers. And he had one volunteer for each person that had been killed in that battle. Union and Confederate. They then went to the approximate area of that battlefield where the death had taken place. They were at Miller's Cornfield, they were at the Sunken Road, at Burnside's Bridge. Each one had a candle. And each one represented a dead soldier not wounded, a dead soldier. And as soon as the sun was going down and it started to get dark, they lit those candles. Podcasters, it was an ocean of flame. I'm going to say that again, an ocean of flame. And that was just the dead. You add the thousands and thousands of wounded And I thought to myself, and I told my students, there was not a better way to get across to modern people what had happened that one day at a place called Antietam. The next day, Lee was too exhausted, the Union was too exhausted, and Lee retreated. Now, I don't want to be a Monday morning historian, but I'm going to tell you this. In all the books that I've read about the Battle of Antietam, I've only read one that said Lee won that battle. Lee did not win that battle. Who won that battle? Well, my gosh, it looked like a draw. There was a tie. Cannot have a tie. I'm going to tell you something, Bodcasters. In that Civil War, every officer knew this. Whoever retreated acknowledged that he lost that battle. When Lee retreated, he acknowledged that he lost that battle. McClellan won that battle for that reason. Now again, I don't want to be a a Monday morning podcaster, but guess what? McClellan. I used to ask my students this. I used to say, here we go. We're going to do the the pregame show. We're going to do Lee as a quarterback for the South, and we're going to do McClellan as a quarterback for the North. The quarterback for the South, Robbie Lee, let's consider him a military genius. The quarterback for the North, a military idiot, a military idiot, idiot, idiot. Mr. Strayer, that's not nice to call somebody an idiot. I will just give you a fact. Is this genius or idiot? That in this battle, you have approximately, 20,000 men that you never send into the fight. One entire corps, the 5th Corps, never went into that battle. What did they do? Sat around and played flutes and twiddled their thumbs. If you do not send men into battle, they might as well be dead. So I used to say, what would you call a general that killed 30,000 of his own men? And oh my gosh, the, the eyes of those students just got big. Did he really do that? No, but he might as well because they never did threaten a Confederate soldier. Now here's the way, and I believe this may be taught at the military academy. What do you learn from these battles? What if, let's do a what if. What if McClellan had attacked in the cornfield across that sunken road, and across that bridge all at the same time because in every one of those positions they had crushed the Confederates. Lee only was able to save the day by bringing men from the other parts of the battlefield. And then when he broke through, he could use those men he had kept in reserve that could very well have been the last battle. 
Why did he not do that? He believed that the Confederates were hiding thousands of men, and he did not want to use up all of his men in one battle. This is what's important. Say whatever you will, except for one historian, McClellan and the North won the Battle of Antietam. And what did the Foreign Secretary of England said in that telegram? If Lee wins, if Lee wins, Lee didn't win. I cannot emphasize the importance of what I just said. Lee did not win. And I'm going to tell you, the next podcast, to use football analogy, Lincoln is going to pick up that ball and he is going to run with it. Podcasters, a little bit of homework. The animated map. The illustration that I'm going to put with this, Don Trahoney's painting of the first Texas going through Miller's Cornfield. You can get on the internet, look up Don Trahoney, look up the painting Lone Star, and you will see it. If you wanted to purchase one today, 10 18 you're going to have to spend a little bit more than $1,000. But you can at least see. Now, Don Trahoney is considered, in my opinion and others, to be the best artist of the Civil War alive. And that's because he studies. All right, I'm going to tell you what he did. He knows he's going to get ready to paint. Now, let me get back up. Let me back up. I used to tell my students this. I know you all want to be history teachers. I know you all want to study history. I know you all want to major in history. But you all say you want to do something, you can make some money. Well, let me just say this. How would you like to see a job application? And it says this. You do what you want to do, when you want to do it, for how long you want to do. And the wage is, this is just off the top of my head, let's just go with, 300000 a year. How many would want to do that? I'm going to repeat again. You do what you want to do when you want to do it. But 300000 a year. Can you do that? Don Trahoney can. Don Trahoney. How do we spell his name? Well, you're just going to have to guess it. Don Trahoney. I think that's close enough. I have it written down here somewhere, but by laughing me, I cannot find it. I'm not going to do another podcast. Don Trahoney, he's a great artist. He's never been caught with a mistake. And what he did, now I'm going to tell you, podcaster, I wrote to him. This is handwriting before email, before electric mail. These paintings were done. I was told this. I don't know for a fact. The original oil would sell for about $100,000. There was a three-year waiting list. I don't have that. I don't know if you do. And so what Don Trahoney would do, he would make up about 200 prints. I forget. Maybe 500 prints. And they would start selling. There was a gentleman over at the mall, and he would get some of these prints in and sell them. And I bought one or two. And this is what he told me, that if Don Trahoney started selling a print at noon on a Saturday, they were sold out by 5 p.m. They would sell those prints at that time for about $150 each. You sell the original oil, you sell these prints, 1,200 of them or so, 
eat a bologna sandwich and then go back and think, what do I want to do next? You find him on the web and you look at those paintings. But I want you to look at the first Texas coming through that cornfield. You see that Lone Star flag? When I talked earlier, I mentioned that in the battle report of the first Texas, in one sentence he said they lost 85% of that men. He will spend the next two pages explaining why they came out of that cornfield without that Lone Star flag. That flag was made from the material of the commander's wedding dress. Look at the battle flag. And if you look close, you're going to see the center star is not there. Trahoney did not just run out of white paint. That flag is in a museum. And these flags were all made without the benefit of an internet. That's probably how many states were in the Confederacy at the time that flag was made. Also, for every battle that I talk about now, I want to mention a Medal of Honor. For the Battle of Antietam, there were 20 Medals of Honor. The one I'm going to honor right now was a 15-year-old boy by the name of John Cook. He was a drummer in a Union Artillery Unit. Podcasters, look him up. Just go to your Google, crank up that Google machine, and put in Medals of Honor, Battle of Antietam, and find John Cook. And it will give you his citation. Not only did he carry a wounded officer off the field of battle, but when the gunners of one of the artillery pieces had been shot down, he then manned the gun even while the battle was raging. He would do battle at Gettysburg, and he would not get the Medal of Honor until June 30th, 1894. Podcasters, I gave him my email. If you can tell me why, most Civil War recipients of the Medal of Honor don't get them for 25 to 30 years. I'd like to know. That seemed to be the common, not the exception. Just mail to them in a box, go down to the post office if they don't deliver, and there is a box from the Congress, and there's a Medal of Honor. Now, not knowing these podcasters that I'm talking to, I'm going to go in and jump ahead, and I'm going to tell you the president that changed the way Medal of Honors were awarded was Theodore Roosevelt. Two things, I'm going to say this, and then we're going to finish this class. He wanted to raise the, the prestige of that medal by having it presented by the president. He would present the first one to a rough rider that he had served with in the Spanish-American War. And that man had done what Forrest Gump did. He took men away from the battle. But I'm going to tell you this, and then we're going to end this class. If you ever get on Jeopardy, and the question is, or the answer is, the only president to ever be awarded a Medal of Honor you ring in and you say, who was Theodore Roosevelt? He wanted one when he was alive, but he didn't get it. He got it many years later, and the way he got it was they found he had been recommended. The man who was Secretary of War did not like him and so did not forward the recommendation. And even then, they had historians look and see what Theodore had done in the Spanish-American War at San Juan Hill to make sure he was worthy of it, and they said he was. So he's the only president ever awarded the Medal of Honor. And then, as long as you're looking for homework, you get on YouTube, that y'all tube, and you play a couple of songs. I'm going to let you pick them out. 
the yellow rose of Texas, and think of the first Texas in the cornfield. And, of course, the Confederate National Anthem of Dixie. And then, I will see you in the next class. Yes, see you. In my imagination, and I can see the faces of some who I know are my podcasters. Until then, have a great one. Dismissed. <laughs>